0: Hello and welcome to Women Who Dared to Write, a podcast about world-changing books and the women who wrote them. I'm historian and author Catherine Pangonis, and each week I'll be speaking to authors and experts about the women throughout history who have made the most significant contributions to the literary world. Today, we're going to be talking about possibly the first ever female historian. Her name was Anna Komneni. Anna was a Byzantine princess, born nearly a thousand years ago into the scheming and politicking of the medieval Byzantine court. The glittering setting of imperial Constantinople, now called Istanbul, was a pretty incestuous and power-hungry place, and princesses were usually married off young to be wives and mothers, and not much else. But Anna had ambition, and managed to sneak an education in a world where this was usually denied to women and girls. Later in life, Anna sat down to write the Alexiad, an epic historic account of her father's reign as emperor. She narrates it in her own voice, with her own opinions, and she just has this incredibly biting and sassy tone, which really makes the history leap off the page. Today, we're hoping to shine the light on her incredible contribution to history. And joining me to do this are Professor Leonora Neville, John and Jean Rowe Professor of Byzantine History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and researcher and author Dr. Yulia Kolovu. Both Leonora and Yulia have written seminal books on Anna, and I'm so pleased to have them with me today. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, thank you for having us. It's great to have you. So Leonora, can you tell us a little bit more about the world that Anna lived in and who she was? Anna was uh, born into the later Eastern
1: Roman Empire. When she thought about her heritage, she saw both ancient Greek and Roman and Christian elements melded together in what she saw as a seamless integration. She was born at a time when her father was pulling the empire out of a period of profound civil war and political dysfunction, as it was being conquered by Normans in the West and by Turks in the East, so a period of real crisis in the later 11th century. And her father, Alexius, was stabilizing things um, and creating new systems of government. So it was a real period of renewal within the Roman Empire. It was also a period of tremendous intellectual flourishing. And as a young person, Anna had access to some fabulous writers and rhetoricians and texts. So when I think of Anna, you characterized her as someone who had ambition. I think we need to make sure that we understand that as intellectual ambition. And what she really had was a thirst for knowledge and learning. So both her her education in theology and in classics was rich and thorough, and that's what she really worked at, and that's what allows her history to be so stunning. And whether or not she also had political ambition is a matter that's up for question. I think that she's been accused of being politically ambitious by men later who disliked the fact that she was so strong as to write a history. So she broke a lot of rules for what demure little women were supposed to do in her culture. She was supposed to sit and have babies and stay in the back room and work with textiles, weaving spindle and distaff. And instead, she had this strong intellectual agenda that she pursued throughout her life. And I think that's the primary reason, her breaking of all those gender rules, that people around her thought that she was inappropriate and... A woman who breaks one rule about how women are supposed to behave must want to break them all, right? And that's why she gets accused of this wild political ambition, such that people much later thought she even wanted to murder her brother and you know, become empress herself, right? Um, so that's something that we can talk about. But I want to underscore that this is a person of great intellectual ambition and achievement.
0: Yeah, no, she's an incredible figure, and everything you've said there, you've succinctly summed up some of the reasons that she's such a fascinating woman, and why I'm so pleased to be doing this episode on her because she is she's just this intellectual powerhouse, and we know her mainly for the Alexiad, but we know that that's that just happens to be the extant work that we have, but that wasn't the only thing she wrote. She wrote much more. Can you tell us a little bit about what else she may have written?
1: She wrote letters that we know were circulated, um, Well, we know from her funeral oration, there's a lot of description of beautiful writing that she did. And letters in this era were meant to be read out loud and performed in front of groups of people. So we think Otis, a letter that's private communication between two people. But no, these are beautiful essays that would have been finely crafted and written so as to be read before groups and performed. It seems that we have excerpts of a little bit of the poetry that she wrote. Um, She also studied philosophy uh, and patronized commentaries on Aristotle, we believe, and discussed philosophy. Um, It was much more culturally acceptable for people to be humble and be discussants and conversationalists rather than authors to put things down in texts, right? Um, So it seems that she perhaps didn't do as much in terms of writing as she did as having her intellectual conversations. But we don't have any of this stuff because it just, it wasn't saved, it wasn't prized. And we have the Alexiad because it is such a good history. People want to know about the First Crusade. They want to know about the Turkish conquests. Um, So it's circulated and was used by later historians um, for centuries because it's just so, so great as a history. But in terms of her intellectual oeuvre, it was considered one of the smaller lesser things that she did by the people who are describing
0: her after her death. That's so interesting and it's amazing how it filters down because now she's really only known for the Alexiad. So I think my next question is actually addressed to both of you but we'll start with you Leonora and then move to Julia. What is it that drew you to Anna? How did you first come across Anna's work and know that you wanted to study her in more depth and bring her contributions to light?
1: I first encountered Anna as a beginning undergraduate student when I was studying uh, surveys of western civilization and noticed that it didn't really make sense because the eastern half of the Roman Empire didn't fall and it seemed to be a continuing classicizing civilization. So I was became interested in what was called Byzantine history um, and then I found this fabulous book written by a woman and it was just so strange. It was so surprising to me in so many ways. It's the first moment, I was probably 19 years old when I first read it, really young, that I realized how much of culture changes over time and how much of what I think is natural would be completely unnatural to someone living a thousand years ago. And that's when I got hooked on history and said, this is what I'm gonna spend my life doing. Um, So it was a huge moment for me just understanding the, the changes in history and how exciting that is. And then we have this narrative by woman of these fabulous story. I mean, it's a rollicking good read in terms of the story that she's it
0: telling. It really is. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's Anna's Chronicle that led to, to my first book as well in a weird sort of way because I wanted to write about the women in this time. But And Yulia has done something slightly different because Yulia has also written a book about Anna, but Yulia, you also have this real interest in historical fiction. So what drew you to Anna? And what was the beginning of your relationship with Anna Kimnaini and her work?
2: Okay, so the beginning of my relationship is very long because I'm Greek. So I grew up in the Greek educational system and Anna Komnini was a figure there, you know, embedded in the system. She was also the protagonist of other works, for example, Cavafi's poem, the famous Kavafi's poem, which um calls her the power hungry woman, how angry she was and how furious because her brother snatched power from her. And this is a narrative that no one really questioned. You know, the two narratives coexisted in Greek in Greek education, so she was this amazing woman. She was the first in, in our books, you know, the first h- proper historian and the daughter of of an emperor and princess and all that. But she was also at the same time, you know, this power hungry woman who, uh, who was famous for that in particular and how her ambition uh, led her to nearly fratricide. So... She was there. However, when um, at some point, much, much later, many, many chapters later, I knew the Alexia because we did it at university, parts of it at school as well. So she was part of our history. So many years later, I came across a novel by Sir Walter Scott in a charity shop, which was called Count Robert of Paris. And I'd never heard of this novel ever before. So I started reading that. I said, hey, come on, hold on, I know these people, (laughs) I know the characters. There was an Alexius Comninos there, there was an Anna Comninos. I said, what? (laughs) What is this? And there was this story about Anna being this, you know, very annoying, blue-stocking princess who had a court of admirers, and she read her history books to them, and everybody had to flatter her. However, she was writing in a powerful way as well. And it's quite interesting that Walter Scott, he was basically putting into fictionalised form exactly what the Scottish historian, Gibbon, was describing
0: in his history. Well, yes, Gibbon, Gibbon famously dismissed Anna. He didn't exactly
2: dismiss her, I think. And Walter Scott does the same. It's not exactly dismissive. It's a kind of, yeah, all right, all right, yes. We we understand that she's something unique and unusual and even great, but at the end of the day, she was not a good woman. You know, she was not a proper, appropriate, appropriate woman. Mm. That is their problem. The problem is not that they don't recognize her value, and I don't think anybody ever dismissed her as as a historian. Really, they may have said that her history is full of you know, uh, flattery for her father and and full of Ways that uh, that 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 might invalidate it as a historical work, and then in the next, very next paragraph, they go on to use all everything she says as historical fact. So they accept they accept the premise. What they don't accept is the fact that she was a woman and wrote all all these things, and she wrote this wonderful book, which is so powerful. They could not dismiss her power, and this is why they disparage her. In my view,
0: oh, I I completely agree, and I think we see this you know across the historical spectrum when women. As Leonora said, when women be, begin to push boundaries that the, start to slightly destabilise parts of the patriarchy, it's the, the immediate response is to shut them down, either calling them bad mothers or politically domineering or whatever it is. So this is certainly a pattern that we see at this time. Um, it's interesting. I'm so interested to hear that in Greece, she's sort of a figure in the canon of history that you study, because that's just not the case in the UK. I mean, I studied the Crusades at A level and then again at university. And Anna was really not brought to the forefront. Um, In fact, the only in fact, my first encounter with Anna was in a history lesson at a level where we're given her like apparently rapturous description of Bermond of Toronto, this apparently very sexy crusader who arrives at the court when she's a teenager. Um, and the teacher sort of dismissed it and saying, well, she's clearly got a crush on him. And, you, you know, out of context, you see where he's coming from, because she says things. His stature was such that he towers above others. His shoulders were broad, slender of waist and flank. His chin smooth than any marble. But I'm going to turn this back to you and you can tell me why there isn't great evidence that she just had a crush. I mean, Leonora, I mean, if we contextualize it within the way she writes, is this exceptional? Is this sexually charged or not? Well, I would like just to
1: point out the the misogyny of taking a, such a profound, mm. huge work of history and zooming in on the part which you can say, well, she was a schoolgirl with a crush, yeah. right? So he becomes um, characterized by our assumptions about femininity and assumptions about, oh, it's a female author. She must have this interesting perspective of being, you know, having the sexual lusty feelings for the strong, fabulous um, Crusader boy, um, so I, I don't like the dismissiveness of that. It's one of the many ways, you start listening to how people talk about the Alexiad. They've had all of these ways to undercut it, even as you're saying it's a great history. Um, so I don't like that. I think that what the portrait of Beaumont does is that structurally, in terms of the rhetoric of her book, he becomes the foil that shows Alexius' greatness, mm. right? So she takes the two characters of the father and son, Robert Giscard and Bohemond of Toronto, and they become alighted into a, a more or less a, a single character of the great, strong, Western, wily, heroic, thoughtful, creative adversary to Alexios Komenos, mm. right? So, And the book starts near the beginning. There's a massive loss in which Alexius loses to the Normans when they're invading Dorachium in Western Greece. And at the end of the book, Alexius comes back and he wins. So she structures this as an arc, right? There are these two battles of Dorachim, the first and second against father and son, are the bookends of her history that give it a lot of strong narrative structure and show how awesome it is that the Eastern Romans won in the end. So that's the context in which she describes this person as a heroic person. And she makes him look like people think oh she's in love with the the knight the sh- knight in shining armor from western europe if you actually look at the description she's making him look like achilles and hector and the great heroes from the iliad right yeah. her book is full with references to homer and homeric allusions, and so he's being described it's not a knight in shining armor at all it's a great warrior of uh like like achilles. it's a great hero yeah like agamemnon right um and so, so that's what I would say about that particular part.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, she's almost setting him up in a way that the Rome writes about Hannibal. It's sort of a Hannibal Scipio, a great king must have a great adversary. Julia, what do you think about this?
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's nothing extraordinary in describing rhetorically a, a nice, you know, a beautiful statue in the first place. So it's it's completely detached. There's no personal feelings in there at all. And I never, I never saw that. And. I never, no one ever in Greece, at least, you know, in when, when I was growing up and when we were reading this, nobody ever thought this, this kind of thing Yeah, that, uh, you know, Anna was in love with Bohemond or she, she, like Professor Neville said very correctly, she just needs a, a worthy adversary and he's the adversary. So he has to be set up on the same terms. On the other hand, novelistically speaking, as a novelist, I mean, it is intriguing to to try and find ways to get into the personal history of uh, or personal feelings of a character. And, you know, novelists, we are famously people who who jump at every opportunity to to make things up, but uh, in the history per se... I don't think there is anything, and I think this is one of the problems that the, Alexiad, the reception of Alexiad had in in Western literature, or in by Western historians. They don't realize, or they didn't until recently. And Professor Neville's work it was similar in that they didn't realize that a lot of the writing was just rhetorical tropes. It had nothing to do with personal feelings or you know, how she really thought or felt about these people she writes about.
0: Yeah, I can com- I completely agree. I mean I think and I think this projection of the fangirling crush thing is very much projecting a sort of a modern Western perspective onto a you know a medieval Greek document, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um and actually Leonora, I was delighted when you're talking about the Homeric Topoi and references because my master's dissertation was the influence of classical epic on Crusades historiography. So this was exactly what I was looking at and I loved it. Um, and I wanted to bring this because from this, we know clearly that Anna is surrounded by Homer when she's growing up. And so I wanted to ask you what what sort of education Anna would have had, because we know, I think that, you know, Imperial women were taught basic literacy as a normal thing. But, you know, to have got to grips with sort of great Greek writers in the classical tradition, how did Anna make that happen? Well, as far as we
1: know, basic education happened uh, when kids were little and it was done in-house and it was often done by women. So it was the moms teaching the kids basic literacy and that would be the literacy to read the Bible, uh, New Testament and read Psalms and sort of basic structural literacy that would get you through sermons and things. Uh, and it seems to be you know, not all that uncommon for people to have some ability to, to read. Right? Um, So that was perfectly normal. Um, The story that's in her funeral oration is that she snuck behind her parents back to find people who would teach her. And so she would stay up at night and was hiding in rooms by herself to read classics because they were worried that classical things would not be great for her moral development. Um, But she was so persistent that they finally relented. And then they hired a very old eunuch who could teach her, right? So someone who was completely asexual and old um, to be her tutor. And then uh, that once she was married as a, as a young person, her husband, Nikiforos Vrenios, uh, was accommodating to the fact that she was a wild intellectual and that they did classics together, right? So they read together and they turned their house into sort of a haven for intellectuals. I'm not entirely sure I believe the story in, her funeral oration completely about her overcoming her parents' reluctance because it functions in that text to give lots of excuses for the author to say why she was still so virtuous. So it's a way of insisting on her her piety and her her closetedness, like her, her willingness to go along with this system in which she would have been sort of sheltered. Um, because that helps the author construct her as a good woman and by their standards, right? As being very demure um, and not, you know, going along with her parents and things. Um, So I think it's possible that, you know, when, when no one was looking, her parents were fine with having her study more extensively in classics. So many of the classic texts, align with their value system much more than we give them credit for. So you could read anything in Plutarch and most of Xenophon and other great authors, and it aligns to a huge degree with their own ethical value systems. So I think there's uh, a lot more consonants than we assume when we think, oh, medieval Christian, they must've hated all that ancient stuff. Actually, it fits pretty well, a lot of
0: it. Yeah, they celebrate it. Exactly. And so for a girl hungry for knowledge and literature, she had, she had good pickings at the Byzantine court. And Yulia, as a writer and, and a reader, um, how do you think that this wide reading that Anna clearly undertook has informed or enriched her work?
2: Oh, it certainly did. I mean, it's it's very very obvious that uh, much of her work and many people have said that is, you know, she's emulating Homer. Obviously, he was the great um, example, the the great peak where everybody wanted to 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 reach. I will um, slightly not disagree exactly, but add something to um, uh, what Leonora said about uh, you know classical literature and and how it fit into uh, the society of the times. And it really did, of course. And many things like Plutarch or Xenophon, which you mentioned were perfectly acceptable, Plato as well, because they aligned with with this Christian ethics and the Christian conception of the world, particularly Plato. It's interesting though that Xenophon and Plutarch are the most conservative of those writers. There was always a slight unease about the poets. Uh, slight or not so slight and there was and there all still is to this day there still is a, a, a section of you know fathers of the church or you know priests or people from the church which is very powerful in Greece still is that would always feel a bit uncomfortable about um homer for example and this is something it's interesting because you're taught we are taught homer from in a, we're taught the myths as myths in primary school but when you go to high school so you're 13 at the first time you start reading the odyssey itself we start with the odyssey in the system and then we move on to the iliad and it's really interesting how you know teachers and students manage with the the mention of extramarital affairs you know Odysseus is in an island with a woman who's not his wife and they go to bed every night together. And this is very explicitly said, you know. And, of course, the the first contact is always giggles and, oh, what's happening here? So a lot of people are a bit uncomfortable with that, you know. And I can understand. I can see that happening in Anna's society too. People saying, okay, yeah, that's fine. You know, read Xenophon as much as you like, but, you know, Homer and talking about sex so openly, and about, you know, people sleeping with other people all the time, and, you know, all all sorts of, of relationships like that. Well, maybe that's why
0: they hired a eunuch to teach her. <laughs> but yes, but it certainly enriched the sort of the style and flavor of her writing. I mean, and, but what I really love reading the Alexa is when you sort of get these glimpses of Anna herself. And there's one moment where she's sort of writing about some of her enemies having misfortunes and she talks about sort of enjoying watching her pen move in the candlelight and there's there's these rich images um so yeah leonora for you what is it that makes the Alexiad just so alive as a work of literature and so remarkable for its time i think it is a wonderful job of being a great um uh,
1: a narrative that upholds alexius's uh, strengths Mm -hmm. right and speaks as a presents him as a model for proper Roman Emperor, um, which speaks to her own politics. So I think it does a great job with that sort of biographical aspect of history. I think it's great as a work of history. And I think she does a really remarkably beautiful job of envisioning what a history by a woman would be. Right? So that in both the beginning and the end, she cries a lot and issues a lot of lamentations, and she's lamenting the death of her father and the death of her husband and the death of her mother, both the beginning and the end. And that's a way of framing this text within a discourse that was acceptable for women to have, which is funeral lamentation, right? So it was perfectly all right for women to cry at funerals as at the end of the Iliad, when, when Hecuba and Ramachy are, are mourning Hector, that's the, the time in which women's voices are heard or in lamentations. And I just think what a beautiful way of saying that I am a woman, Right? She could have written this using her husband's name, and no one would ever have known that it was written by a woman if she just wanted to have it be like a male-style history. She could have left off the beginning and the end and just done historical narrative. No one would ever, ever know right, that it had been written by a woman if she wanted to do that. right. But instead, she says, let me write history as a woman. What would it be like? So she has these moments when she breaks into her feminine voice. It's very clear at the beginning and the end. But there are times in the other parts when, when her, um, her brother dies in battle. She says, all right, we've got to pause now. I've just, excuse me, I'm going to stop using my historian's voice. And I'm going to mourn for a while. And then she says her, I, I, you know, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then, <laughs> all right, now I've got that out of the system. I'm going to dry my eyes and go back to my historian's voice. Uh, so I just love the way that she also, she counters so many of the objections that people would going to have to a woman writing history. She sees them, she recognizes them, and she has a rhetorical answer, right? So it's beautiful as a piece of history, but I also think it's pretty um, unmatched as a woman addressing the gender issues of her culture and speaking in what is Always had been an entirely masculine genre, but not going all the way of just saying, "Oh, I can write just like a man," and then proceeding to write just like a man. Hmm. Right? She writes like a man when she's writing certain sections, but in a different voice the other time. So I think that makes it as as well as just having this wonderful narrative arc that I alluded to before in terms of the drama um, and the way that it responds to um, the. Subsequent crusades and the relations with the the crusaders coming into the empire. So it makes a powerful, very powerful political argument against aligning with the crusaders. And that's straight through. So you can see it both in terms of literature and genre and as political commentary and memorialization of her father. It rocks.
0: Fantastic. I agree. I mean, it's yeah, as you say, it's phenomenal how she doesn't she doesn't suppress her female voice, and she actually brings it to the fore and makes you accept that this is a woman writing. And she brings in these signposts to show how she's doing using these different techniques, and it's it's phenomenal. Yulia, for you, is it is it the same, or what is it for you that really makes this stand out as a work of literature as much as as a source?
2: I think that Anna has a really Personal voice and her voice integrates history and literature in a unique way, which maybe is not so unique today because history has moved back into this kind of, of thing she was doing, bringing you know a vivid narrative with a um, narration of events as they truly happen, and um, she adopts novelistic techniques in my view for example um it was mentioned before that uh, she laments her her brother's death in in battle he wasn't really killed in battle he did die during the the expedition but it wasn't in battle however by when you read it you don't realize that she never says he died you know, she never puts it in so many words, so she she doesn't tell lies. It is a true narration. He died during an expedition. You would think by the way she writes that he died in battle, but he didn't. So what this says to me is how she uses episodes from you know facts, real real facts, and does not really change them, but adapts them to suit her purposes of making the narrative as vivid. And as strong as possible. This is something that historians do today. Yourself as well, uh, Catherine. You know, in your in your book, mm. you know, you Indeed. use literature yeah, yeah. As, a, as a popular historian. Yeah, exactly. You use literature in order to make it more alive to people because history has been associated with dry, boring event after event and date after date and war after war, battle after battle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas the new tendency which is not so new because Anna mm-hmm. did it is to make it really come alive by subtly you know using events in a way that feels more novelistic more you know taken into account the, the narrative arc for example or character building or even
0: world building Of course yeah she definitely you know, she definitely uses episodes to sort of drive the narrative forward and I think what Anna does a fantastic job of in the Alexiad. Is really injecting the humanity into the history, and that's something I love about the Greek chroniclers of that time. But I'm always warned by historians, like, oh, I can't take I can't take Nikitas Knyati's too seriously, and this, that, and the other. But it's still great to read. And Anna, maybe, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I think Anna does do a good job of balancing the facts with 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 sort of literary flair. Um, and we know a bit from her funeral orations, but what would Anna's contemporaries have made of her? Do we think this woman? writing and becoming this literary figure. You've mentioned in the Walter Scott novel, she's presented as this annoying blue stocking sort of thing. How do you think, how can we think she was really perceived and thought of at the Byzantine court? Leonora, over to you. I think, I imagine that opinions varied about her a
1: lot. I think she, certainly the people who like talking philosophy with her and people who were participating in her literary son really did appreciate her and, and thought thought well of her. I think that all of her efforts to negotiate the um, gender-based objections to her actions as a woman author that she embedded in the Alexiad, they would have worked for a lot of people, right? I think that many people probably did really appreciate her as an intellectual. I'm sure she was fairly famous as an intellectual, who's so was certainly unusual. And then what people thought of that for good or ill probably varied. So I think the people who remembered her and were the person writing her funeral oration and the people who were there when that was orated probably thought very highly of her. When we get to the later 12th century, when Nikitas Corniates basically blames her for the fall of the Roman Empire, um, <laughs> he thought she was awful, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we know that his wife was a good woman who stayed at home. Right. So he's he's, I think, very misogynistic and does a lot of blaming the decline of the empire on powerful women. He takes her and makes her an archetype of the evil, powerful woman. So he I think he read the Alexiad. I think he knew it pretty well. Um, He might have even agreed with the politics of it. Mm -hmm. But um, all of her ways of trying to make herself look like a good woman didn't work for him. And so I think we certainly have one powerful witness that her stuff didn't work. And unfortunately, he sets the tone for interpretations all the way through. Um, She was appreciated much more in early modern Europe when the Alexiad circulated in chunks. So there was the part about the Crusades and the part about the Turks. Those pieces circulated. And so early, you know, 16th, 17th, most of the 18th centuries, people said, wow, it's a really great history. And it's written by women, huh? And then when it was published all together with the beginning and the ends, so that means with the more feminine parts, then people started thinking, oh, this is a vain woman. And they start misinterpreting all of her strategies for seeming like a good woman, right? So that's when her reputation takes a real hit. But I kind of think that in her era, she would have been admired by a lot of people. um, And she certainly worked hard at getting people to think that she was good by the standards of their culture, at the same time that she was an intellectual.
0: Thank you, Leonora. And to you, tell us a bit about the circumstances that led Anna to write the Alexiad. Where was she when she wrote it, and how did she come to be there?
2: Well, she wrote it famously after her, her husband died. So she sort of continued his work. But she was, at the time, she was living in, in not exactly in a monastery, but in a suite of, of, of apartments or a building adjacent to a monastery, the monastery of Kecheritomeni, full of grace, which her mother built and endowed. And, of course, there is this, um, again, another myth about Anna, that she she was in exile in this miserable life, in this miserable monastery, and she was, you know, uh, uh, living like a, a nun, with all sorts of deprivations, which is very so far from the truth that it's it's incredible. There were in older times there were some narratives about other imperial women who were exiled in monasteries and and lived you know very deprived lives. But Anna's case was nothing like that at all. The description of the of the Tipicon, which is the let's say the statue of of the of the monastery, with the details about the buildings, about what everybody was allowed to, to eat or not shows that it may have started as, as a monastic institution, but very quickly it became just a palatial sort of home away from home for, for imperial women, for her mother when she became a widow, and for herself when she was a widow too. And it was basically a secluded, lovely, beautiful place with all comforts and luxuries, with servants, mm-hmm. anything she would like. And more importantly... Um, a place where she could receive men, visitors, you know, and be blameless. She wasn't accepting him into her private home, but it was this institution, you know, next to a monastery. But it wasn't the monastery. There was a lock and key between them. There was, you know, it was in a different part of the complex. So it was... It sounds like the ideal writer's retreat. And so she wasn't in disgrace at all. Exactly. It was a very luxurious writer's retreat. Exactly that.
0: And so Leonora, what do you think our main takeaways should be from Anna and the Alexiad for listeners who aren't super familiar with her work and her narrative?
1: I hope that you can remember her as one of the greatest female intellectuals of the pre-modern world and a woman who wrote a spectacular history. And I hope that if you ever hear that she's the power hungry woman who wanted to clutch at the throne and murder her brother, that you recognize that as later misogyny. And, and push back against that and imagine her not in the the internal exile of a dingy monastery, but in her beautiful writer's retreat, uh, being intellectual, commenting on politics. Um, and I think she'd get along with her brother and her sister-in-law just <laughs> fine
0: and her husband. And so um, I just remember her as an intellectual remember her as an intellectual. That's fantastic. We've done so I think we've done quite a bit today to try and rehabilitate popular appreciation and understanding of Anna. My final question is, would you like to meet her? Would you have her to a dinner party? What do we think Anna was like in real life? I'm getting a strong nod from Leonora. Yulia, what do you think?
2: Oh, definitely. I would love to to have her. Although I do fear that she would come into the flat and you know do this to, to check if there was any dust anywhere she she strikes me as this <laughs> woman who would nothing would escape her and she would check out everything and be very demanding in in a way in a good way you
0: know uh, I'd love to meet her but I think I'd find her incredibly intimidating and formidable but as we say in a good way Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to Women Who Dared to Write. And thank you also to Professor Leonora Neville and Dr Yulia Kolovu for this fascinating chat. Make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss our next episode. See you in two weeks.